Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm his friend who just wants to kick back and relax with a nice cup of coffee, Duncan Nickel. And we are a fantasy book club. Every other week we sit down, we peruse through a fantasy novel and we give it a review. And this week we're talking about Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry. This is not a sort of fantasy novel, Duncan, that I've ever read before. This is a real departure for us from high fantasy, grand adventures, whole realms being at great peril, revolution coming. None of that in this book. No, this is a very different, small scope, intimate, kind of cosy fantasy read. Almost using the fantasy as a, a light set dressing at points. I think that's something I really want to hash out with you later. But Geordie, okay. before we jump into Legends and Artes, so, you been reading anything else over the little interlude? I have. I, I have read a little something else, and it's actually relevant to our podcast. Although it is not fantasy, I am currently in the middle of reading Yellowface by R.F. Kuang, the writer of The Poppy War. Interesting. I So I didn't... I was vaguely aware of Yellowface. I, I know about Babel, her other fantasy work. Mm. Now, Geordie, we weren't the biggest fans of The Poppy War. I think no, you liked we even I was, I was less also, than I, I did. I was the, the big naysayer in that book. But Yellowface is so good. This is a really good book. Okay, that's. I'm actually genuinely really happy to hear that. Because I think it's it's interesting how, you know, one book does not make an author. And it mm-hmm. can just be, it's their style or what they're going for in that story. So really tell me, what's Yellowface actually about? Well, I'll put it quite briefly, but it's about, uh, there are two writers, they're friends, but definitely not close friends. One of them is an extremely successful Chinese-American author who dies in an accident. And her friend is a much less successful author, is technically published, but like her book was not well received. She finds the manuscript for her dead friend's next hit, and then she appropriates it she takes it she pretends it's her own and says i wrote it in memory of my dead friend and i don't know where the story is going from here but it's clearly going to be this sort of cat and mouse game of how how long can she cover up this lie and what harm does she do to the book in all the changes she makes to it in order to make it more palatable so it's about cultural appropriation it's about uh, plagiarism which is super relevant this week because we're recording this on the 9th of December, 2023, and plagiarism is a really hot topic in this exact week, so a very choice uh, a very choice book for this occasion. See, I think you've kind of sold it there. I am going to see that, because taking that plagiarism in the conversation is something that I'm really kind of fascinated by. Coming from a bit more of an academic background, it is the biggest mm. red flag. No, no, don't you dare ever, ever plagiarise. Mm-hmm. It's just the worst kind of crime you can commit when it comes to published works. And to kind of dive into and to dive into the emotional states of like why people do it. And is there a wibbly wobbly line or is there a very hard line? I have to get that a read. And what have you been reading, Dunk? Well, Geordie, I have taken it. I've gone the complete opposite direction. I finished Legend Lattes very quickly. Yeah, me um, too. I found it a really enjoyable read. So when I had that kind of free block in my schedule, I went for the exact opposite end of the spectrum. I went for a really classic, epic fantasy, high fantasy book. And I finally, finally got round to finishing off the Rift War saga mm. by reading Darkness at Sethanon, the first sort of arc in the Rift War cycle by Eamon Feist. And how did you find it? Good. Great. <laughs> 
very it was very good it was strong it was so strong it was solid it definitely left me in a place of i really enjoyed the first book all the first two books depending how you count i won't get into that now and i thought like oh no this was this took like the basic structure and elevated it but i do feel that the subsequent two books in the series that i've read silverthorn and darkness of sethanon i don't think they quite elevate it to the same level they don't play they're still very traditional uh, bad guys over there they're evil, they're goblins, they're dark elves, they're trolls, and us, the good humans, are going to fight them, and there's going to be a last stand, and it's going to be all epic and, you know, mm. heroic. And I did enjoy that, and I genuinely thought it was a great read. I really do recommend, and I'm sure at some point we will touch on this series um, in this podcast. But I did have a moment when I put it down, I went, I'm glad I read it. But I do think the landscape has moved on quite a lot since when this was first written until the late Mm, 80s, mm. where I'm almost too used to what the grim, dark, the morally grey characters, the worst of humanity that, although it was really refreshing to get that evil monsters over there were going to be heroic humans. And by the way, I'm slightly understanding it. There's some really great like um, elements when it comes to like the powers of the gods in this world and some really cool magic and they travel through time at one point and some of the visuals are really interesting Not the visuals the descriptions but that kind of fundamental moral lines are still very firmly in place and i'm like cool i'm sure you know i mean i'm enjoying reading it and there's loads of people out there who would love this but i was like i almost feel like i've moved on or i'm just not quite ready for this now you know i'm in too many other kind of oh what's what are the questions what are the big questions of morality to have a very black and white book again it's like well that, mm, that was fun sure, i hear you so we'll probably get into the riff for at some point in the future mark on your calendars 2026 when we get around to that one but for the present we're reading legends and lattes i said duncan that i've never really read a book like this before um do you have you come across something like this before? Something where the stakes are extremely low? It's about the success of a coffee shop? Not in book form. I think I have definitely seen... I once watched an anime called, like, The Devil is a Part-Timer, where it's like a, a heroic dark... It's like a dark lord ends up transported to another world and works in, like, a McDonald's. It had a similar... Not a similar vibe, but... So I have seen this idea of going really low-key before but this is the first time i sat down and really took in a whole novel's worth of it and really wondered yeah i and i want to make clear that i don't think this is like i'm not claiming this is in any way a unique book it's just not something that i peruse often because i know about stuff like the devil is a part-timer and there are a lot of like isekai anime which are about people running a general store or being a pharmacist but i don't watch that shit because it sounds boring. And that was the thing that I was almost fascinated by. I didn't pick this book. Well, I partly picked this book because it was on sale. Um, but I partly was really curious. But I wanted to know, what do you fill that page count with? And is it going to be interesting? Will I still be engaged? Or is this just some a really niche mm. thing that certain people it will just resonate with and others will just be sitting there like, can something happen, please? Please, can something happen? And I think that this is a book where it has to resonate with you. Because long before you picked this, Duncan, I had seen a whole bunch of, like, posts about how much people hate this book and about how, you know, like, it's so overhyped and stuff. So when I when you brought it up, I thought, like, oh, that's that book that, like, was initially well-received but people have turned against. Reading it now, 
It's so obvious. This is just something you have to like. And if you don't like it, well, sure, there's nothing you can say about it. And granted, that is every single book we read. But for this one in particular, it just comes down to, are you able to be interested in these characters? And they're largely unimportant, but still heartfelt desires. And for me, I absolutely could. I was so on board throughout this entire book. It had me from chapter one on. I'm both like elated to hear that and in some ways kind of disappointed because I think this would be a much more interesting conversation if one of us didn't like it. But I also was completely brought in on it. I mean, Duncan, right now, right now, Duncan, I'm going to take on the role of someone who didn't like that book. And I don't think it would make for an interesting podcast because here's what you have to say. Nothing happened, like, nothing important happened, I kept waiting for stuff to kick off, for the exciting bits to begin, and, uh, it never did. Like, it was just about whether they could find new baked goods, and whether they're gonna patch the hole in the ceiling. And even the exciting bit about, like, them dealing with a mafia, it just gets, like, hand-waved away. The fuck, man? You know, that's my impression. I don't believe any of that crap. And all I can say is, oh, that's a shame. Don't worry, though. There are loads of other books out there you'll enjoy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's something to really be said. This is the story, and to give a brief summation, because you did drop in the mafia there, which I think was a, a curve I wasn't fully expecting. This is a story of mm. a very classic and kind of tropey fantasy world. We have all the characters you expect out of your kind of D&D campaign, and some you wouldn't actually, to be fair. Bit of a originality there. But they're, they're all stocks mm. that we've kind of already seen. And we follow Viv, who's an orc, who used to be a fighter, who used to travel around with her band doing mercenary work. And just one day, she just sort of thought to herself, is this it? Is this it forever until I either get an unlucky hit in and I go down? No, I want to retire. So she saves up her money. She goes on one last quest to get a magical good luck charm. And she invests her money to set up mm-hmm. a coffee shop. And she rocks up in a new town. She's the new person on the block. And it's we just follow her as she makes friends, calls in favours, is nice to people, and slowly co- turns. And this is a really important part, is that opening the coffee shop, she has to convert like an abandoned stable. So, so much of this, definitely the first third of this book, is the story of just sweeping it out knocking it down getting the new tables in sanding them down waxing the tables oh yes if if you're not prepared for an author to lovingly go over the work that needs to be done to restore an old building stop reading it chapter three put the book down because i fucking love that shit i had such a good time and then I'm so excited to see... I was on tenterhooks in parts of this book being like, oh man, are they going to find a baker to make good baked goods? What's going to happen next? But there is still a structure. There is still some action in here. There is a moment of turmoil. There's sort of two main antagonistic forces. And Mm -hmm. while I wouldn't say one of them is kind of hand-waved away... I think it works for the plot. Because I, I, I almost by that point, Geordie, and I think this would be a real dividing yeah. line for someone. If you weren't happy that that got hand waved away so you could go back to the cosy stuff, then I think you're mm-hmm. you're not on the right level. <laughs> you're not quite attuned. And, do you think, and I think what we've said, we've said hand waved away in quite a blasé way. And that is not an accurate way to describe it. That's just going over it very briefly. 
To be more precise, so I'll, I'll just lay this out. Viv, the York, has opened up her coffee shop. Things are starting to go quite well. The, the, the business is picking up speed. And a character keeps coming around. This mafia goon keeps saying, it's a real nice place you got here. You got to pay protection money. I'm running a protection racket uh, for the Madrigal, the, the local mafia boss. And you have to pay up. Every week, you're going to have to pay a little bit of money. And we won't get in your way. Viv is this big, tough barbarian. And she keeps saying, no, no, I'm not going to pay you any money. This guy keeps giving her warnings, and eventually, you, we come to a head. She meets the Madrigal, and and she just eventually, she says, okay, fine. There's this, the, the drama of this scene isn't, Viv's going to have to fight a bunch of mob goons. It's Tandri, her business partner, and, you know, partner in other things, um... Her concern that Viv is going to be forced back into a life of violence, something that she's managed to escape, that people will see her the way in which they, in which she's perceived, not the way in which she is. And so that's what's actually at stake. It's Viv's humanity. And when she just says, fine, I'll go along, I'll pay my dues, and she submits, she gives up, that is so much braver than her defiance. It's like in, um, it's like in The Worm and His Kings. Like, um, it's, it's like what Corinne says. It's like sometimes giving up takes more courage and continuing. It kind of goes to the, um, for, for me at least, it, it tapped into that same vein of like reading a Superman comic or, maybe not Superman, maybe that's Spider-Man, where it's like the hero has the power to just take the villain out. But that's not what you're looking for. It's mm. about then ha- holding back and, towing the line and knowing when's enough and staying a good guy that's what you're rooting for Mm. not Mm. just winning the fight there's this there's this manga now an anime called vinland saga and it's eventually it's a it becomes a story about pacifism it becomes a story about the hopelessness of violence and about how it, it never makes you happy it always it ruins your life and even though you can become addicted to it and there's this part of the story where the main character is so committed to non-violence that he allows people to to beat him and attack him and he never fights back. And this moment of him refusing to fight, of just taking the hits and getting back up and not doing anything, is so much cooler and braver and more impressive than any defeats of violence he's previously done in the entire manga. And he makes this statement of like, I'll I'll run away. Whenever danger comes, I will just run, even if it's to the ends of the earth. And you can't believe how the language of violence and the cinematic display of violence has been co-opted into something completely alien to its nature. And it almost reveals itself, though, even when you have a character and it that is violent and it, there is an action scene... You don't root for them just to be violent. Like when you, there's moments that you really think about. It's about the character standing up and being brave and defying the odds. That's what you're rooting for. The fact that it often gets packaged up in violence mm. isn't the point. You don't want a character just to walk into a room, be super powerful, and mop the floor. Occasionally, it can be fun, but in general, that you Some can't sustain that. It's about the idea of standing for values and doing the right thing, whether yeah. or not that's in a violent package or a peaceful and package. And when Viv chooses not to do violence, she's choosing the harder path. She's choosing, I'm going to live out the simpler, humbler, quieter life, even if it costs me something. 
Now, we did say hand wave though, because it does get slightly, I think, because the whole point is the fact that it's not that Viv can't afford the money. At least that's not, that's not the impression I got. It was just the no. ethics or, or the morals or the internal... I don't know, is it and the honor? pride. The pride, that's a much better way to phrase it on the honour. The pride of like, I can't give up a bit of what I've worked for. So I do think when she makes that sacrifice, and I'm going to just tilt over, I think, into a bit of a spoiler on this one, the magical basically goes, ah, I'm really impressed by you. Don't you worry. We'll work out a deal. I don't want you to abandon your pride. And I was like, okay. Well, that is nice. and It does give me a warm-hearted feeling. But we'd already just made the big sacrifice. I don't follow, Duncan. Well, she doesn't have to give the money in the plot. Yes, she does. She doesn't? She gives goods. Yeah, she gives she gives them the money every week. Oh, that's not how I read it. Have I misremembered well, this? I definitely remember it as a... Yes, you have misremembered this. There's multiple scenes afterwards where characters come and they collect money from her. I didn't think they were collecting money. I thought they were just collecting, like, baked goods. No, the money's in the baked goods, man. I don't think that's how I interpret it. Oh, may- well, maybe I'm wrong. My my interpretation was, I'm pretty sure Duncan they're not just after the cinnamon rolls. I thought they genuinely no, they genuinely are. They went those are really good cinnamon rolls. Here, I'll let I'll let take some cinnamon rolls instead of the baked goods. That's why they don't have to pay. <laughs> I am going to reread that section after the episode, and we'll find out who's correct. Drum roll, please, ladies, gentlemen, and non-battery pals. The correct answer is Duncan. Duncan got it right. I was wrong. Ugh. Fuck. If that is the case, I will mu- I will mark down my opinion of this book somewhat because I don't like Vans at all. That's stupid. Um, but yeah. By your definition, I don't think it's a hand wave, but that's why I find interpretation. I say, oh, they got off a bit light there after we just made the big sacrifice. But that's really only one plot arc, even a subplot, because then we do move on to more. But honestly, Doddy, I don't feel like that's what I'm... I'm not here with excitement wanting to talk about sort of the, those challenges. I want to start talking about the side characters, because that's really where I feel like this shines. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. The characters and the uh, the ensemble and, it, and the growing ensemble. That's sort of the charming part of it. So, Geordie, what did you think about Cal? Cal is the first character that Viv meets and befriends in the city. He's a hob. That's that's this book's term for a goblin, I guess. A hobgoblin, sir. Um, pretty grounded thing, isn't it? It Yeah, yeah. Hob, very essential part of fantasy. And, and so this guy is... um. It, it the nice. What I like about Cal is that he's an initial, first friendly face, a sort of gruff figure, who you get to like bounce other characters, you know, um, sincerity off of because oh, he's got a bit of a guarded heart, you know, like he's got a heart of gold in there, but you really got to dig for it. Um, and I, what I like about it is that as he and Viv go close, there is this strong presence of well, Cal is a carpenter. Cal's not going to work for the store. Cal's important to the story, but he has to slip away, and and that happens. And you, I genuinely felt bad knowing as soon as the work was done that we weren't going to see as much of him, and that he would be lonely. 
And it's very strange for me to have a side character who has a, a functional job within a story for me to go, oh, but I care, she's going to be lonely now. They don't have a reason to be around anymore. I love the fact that you've gone, that character's going to be lonely. Not, I'll miss him. No, no, that character has been so well realised that I'm like, yeah, no, he's going to be in the, he's going to be like behind the page. Sad that he's not hanging out with our characters. I was. I created a real sense of living space in my head for this book. And this book has is such a nice, tied up, simple package that I I was actually, that I was concerned when I found out that there was another book in the series. But when I found out that it's a prequel, I was like, well, that just makes sense because this book, it has such a complete story arc that I really didn't want to go any further. It's kind of hard because I'm in two minds. On one hand, I'm like, would I want just this concept played out again? Like, could you just pick up new characters, different scenario, and go through sort of the same motions? But I believe the, the prequel is a bookshop. I don't know. I know the prequel is about books. I don't know, actually know what it's about. I mean, I don't... I really struggle to actually comprehend what it could be, aside from Viv getting the idea to start a business, because... I feel like Viv would mention if she started a previous business endeavour. Exactly. It seems a bit odd, but on the one hand, I'm like, well, there aren't many books that I'm aware of out there like Legends of Latte. So obviously I want more books like this, but at the same time, I'm like, how can you be like this, but still be different enough to be worth going around again? So I am intrigued. And the thing that um, I, I, I feel like we should bring up at this juncture is that whilst there aren't a lot of books in my experience like this and certainly not ones that are quite as successful as this this is much more of a video gamey sort of setting like stardew valley stuff like that games like this which are cozy and quiet and quaint and where there's very little outside pressure those seem to be much more common in this sort of whimsical soft fantastical setting do you feel because I often, when we I was picking up this book, getting that kind of D and D setting, but in terms of tropes. But you're right; that's not actually really accurate because D and D never gives you the same vibes. Depends how you run it, I guess. It shouldn't. If you if you're getting these vibes and playing Dungeons and Dragons, then you're playing it wrong. <laughs> like that's not what the game's for. You should play a game about starting a coffee shop. And actually, when this when I first heard about this years ago. Um, my impression was this is really about a about a D and D party that gives up adventuring and starts a coffee shop, which a whole bunch of D and D campaigns kind of turn into. Characters realize that they're not actually that interested in fighting monsters, and they'd much rather open a tavern. And that's really hard to do in a game that doesn't support running a business. There are rules in the game in the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons for running a business, and they suck. They're awful rules. Do you have a do you have a recommendation? Is there a role play system out there that you're like, yeah, try this? No, because I'm not interested in playing that in a role playing game. Uh, if I want to do that, I'd play Stardew Valley. Uh, I kind of fired from the hip with that answer, but um, if I had to give a recommendation, the only one I can really think of is Blades in the Dark. It's the only game I've played which is actually about running a business, even though it's actually about running a criminal enterprise. I'm sure there are lots of good games out there which do similar rules to Blades in the Dark for complications around running a business. Lord knows there are a lot of indie RPGs out there 
and yeah, definitely look it up. It shouldn't be hard to find. I bet you could find a Reddit post saying, I want to play Legends and Lattes. What RPG system would you recommend? <laughs> Fair enough. No, I think that's a good start to take. But then going back to them then, so this is quite a unique vibe, but I don't know. I feel like some of the elements that really engage me, yes, you've got the... What, make, what is this that actually we're saying is unique? Is the whole package, but... A lot of the character arcs, you've got Cal, who's got a heart of gold, you've got a dig, you've got Tandri, who's a bit cold and standoffish, but is you just want to see that kind of fall part and mm. grow closer to Viv. Ratkin, Thimble, sorry, who is a Ratkin. Cutest character Thimble. ever. I think these characters I could love in another setting. It's just I like the fact that it because the focus, the main focus is on this like renovation and the business mm-hmm. you're not almost distracted away from the characters you can always just trust that they'll come back in the next chapter and they'll be there and we can keep working on that uh speaking of tandri i feel like the relationship between viv and tandri is a really solid and serviceable part of the book which just gives it so much of its cohesion they're not exactly like big nuanced characters but you really enjoy seeing them hang out you you love seeing them talk they're a really solid cohesive team there's no great source there's no really great source of drama between them but very few points where they have anything like an argument so you'd get this sort of this a fantasy like to use it in its its lowercase f term the idea of having like a really supportive partner whether that was a business partner or whether that's a romantic partner Someone who will go along and help you achieve your dreams. Oh, God, the fact that that's a fantasy. I mean, obviously it is, but it touched my heart, warms my heart up again to thinking about it. And it is really nice to see. I really like it when you get a couple in literature who don't have drama between them. It drives me up the wall, this idea that focus on romance being the will they, won't they? They're torn apart. There's been a misunderstanding. I do just like, no, it can be really nice just to watch two people who do get on, who do work well together, just slowly. And in my opinion, very naturally, the pacing I felt was really well done. Yeah, like and Rachel. I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I said that. I'm just throwing shit out there. This episode needs to be spicier. Well, Geordie... I completely disagree. I do see the Joey and Rachel thing. And like when you're watching it, I'm watching it back again, as you always do. And it always really upsets me that you get so much slow, gradual build towards it. And then they just throw it in the bin in a single episode. Like absolute waste of potential. Let's explore it. And it's going to break down. They should have had it break down in somewhere a bit more interesting. Oh man. Oh man. It's getting heated. I didn't realize this was such a hot, this is such a, this is such a crucial point for him. And to have that put in the bin and Rachel go back to Ross at the end. Oh, no. I mean, people say that show has a good ending. That is just a betrayal of everything that's happened over the last 10 seasons. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that the final episode of Friends is good. Oh, no, the ending for Monica and Chandler, it just, that warms my heart. Of course it does. I also like the last joke. The last joke's a good one. What a, no, this is not what we're talking about. Listen, what I really like is that this book essentially takes a very familiar structure in fantasy and it just completely recontextualizes. And I'm ta- what I'm talking about is assembling the band. You know, go back to, like, um, 
Kings of the Wild. Kings of the Wild. Yes, exactly, Duncan. Thank you. Um, go back to Kings of the Wild. Like, that's a classic trope, getting the band back together. In this case, or getting the band together in the first place. How many fantasy adventures do we see where they go from place to place and slowly they pick up stragglers until you have a cohesive team put together? That happens in this book as well, except the different members of the team are Viv, Viv's assistant, the carpenter who helps build the shop, the baker, and the, the local guitar player or lute player. Pendry. Pendry, yes. Pendry was so much fun in this. Pendry, for being the bard, and he is an actual bard, and simultaneously, like, being everything that, like, a Dungeons & Dragons game bard is sort of meant to be, but at the same time, still fitting the setting perfectly. Like, the bravado, yet his his nervousness and his, like, he's like he's got the swagger, he's just not confident in it yet. I don't think I could like him more. What I like about it is that it's um it completely changes what you'd expect from the cocksure ladies man tropey bard to this the sort of Ed Sheeran type you know <laughs> like the oh he's just a regular guy who has a guitar and because he knows three chords all the girls like him like what I love about that is that Pendry's obviously completely oblivious how many people at the coffee shop are coming there to watch him and like fawn over him and he has no idea because he has no self-confidence he doesn't know that he's like a a cute so-and-so he just thinks he's a big clumsy oaf and it's just so different and i love the way particularly he gets characterized that when he first goes there he plays like a really out play song i think he's meant to wrote like a heavy metal piece exactly yeah he's playing hardcore rock and roll he gets the moment where people just kind of look at him. He, like, realises what he's done and he just runs away. Ah, uh, it's so cute. No, and the great thing about that scene is that it plays into the overall building momentum of the story. Because what the story really is about is the invention of the coffee shop. Now, we mentioned earlier, like you said way right, right at the start, Viv has opened a coffee shop. But what the novel does that's smart is that it makes the idea of a coffee shop something that's quite arcane something that's quite weird and foreign it's coffee is a gnomish drink in this it's something that only the gnomes know know to make and only gnomes initially kind of drink it at all and viv is in that way a sort of pioneer going into a business which only she knows about (laughs) The coffee machine, like the one you see in a coffee shop, is this grand piece of gnomish architecture, which no one understands. And she has to get people to agree that they like coffee, like calling it hot bean juice. And there's all sorts of gags in the book about people being like, it's not really like tea at all. What do you what do you mean? And how it hard it is to describe the flavor. And so throughout the book, what you see is things slowly being invented for the first time, like the idea of pairing drinks with food, the idea of drinks being able to have on the go, the idea that you could sit in the coffee shop and not pay for anything. And eventually they're like, no, we have to do a policy about this where you have to buy a drink and they invent that. And so by the end, they have a fully realized coffee shop out of nothing and it's so cute and satisfying and this is really well demonstrated in the book by the fact that ever so often and i don't know do you have a physical copy or did you get a digital one 
I got the uh, I got the audiobook because oh. I w- and I thought it was important because Travis Chaudry does the narration because Travis Ch- Chaudry is a professional voice actor. Right. That might change this quite a bit because when you have a physical copy of the book, ever so often you get a really nice page that does the menu and the menu's getting updated and it has all of the description yes. of how the menu's been you know, actually looks with the artwork and the d- decals on mm. it are actually there on the page. So I love the fact that as yes, you go through it's it... it's like it a progression builds. bar in a video game. Um, As things get filled in. Yeah, I think so. Oh, I always love it. It's like The Legend of Zelda where you, uh, like, you open up your inventory screen at the start and it has all the blank spaces. And you're like, well, I know mm. things are going to go in there, but I don't know what yet. It's, um, it's very clear that... Because the narrator is the author, he understands how important that is. So he makes sure to deliver it in a way where you're like, yes, this is important. This signifies the growth of the store. And when each time it ends with, I can't remember what the line exactly is, but it's like, tastes, uh, fine tastes for the working woman and gentleman or whatever. Um... Each time he says it, he's like, yes, this is the ethos of the store. I'm really going to sell it to you to understand that when I say this line, that is a late motif telling you I finished reading the menu. We are making progress. I think that's that emphasis on the small details that actually makes this book work. I said earlier, like, how do you fill up the page count? And it's by giving this detailed description and the time to things that otherwise would be quite small. I, I was Thinking of doing this comparison for someone who haven't read the book, but being like, oh, it's a bit like in um, like Shaun of the Dead, like shooting like mundane things, but like they're an action scene, like buttering bread. Uh, but I don't think that's quite the description I'm going for. I think a bear way would be to... T- no, what it is, it's like a Hemingway novel. Hemingway novels are all about doing minute details and just laying out, we do this and then we do that and just doing step-by-step process going through and the process of doing something in its own way becomes beautiful. This is just lying quite late in the book, which just, I don't know, really hit me on this point where we have, by the time Thimble slipped in the door, the dairyman had delivered their cream and butter and eggs. And I'm like, thank you for telling me the dairy man had already come. Because you know what? I didn't know when he came. And I didn't know what he bought you. I didn't even know, you know, you had that on order. <laughs> and that's important. Yeah, and there's a bit in the book where they get, like, an icebox. And I'm like, oh, good. They have an icebox. I feel good about this. I like to know that the store is coming along. It always... I'm genuinely just so impressed because I feel like I can't... Bear in mind, I've not actually ever worked in a coffee shop, so... I am not an expert, mm. but I feel like I can't critique it. I feel like he's actually nailed every detail. It's like, yeah, don't you don't you worry. Nothing's going to miss. You are seeing this well, business put together piece by piece. I almost feel more prepared to go into the world now and open my own coffee shop. Probably false confidence <laughs> there, having read this book, though. Well, you don't have a magic luck stone to bury at the intersection of magical lines. Oh, do you want to go into detail on that? Because that is the most fantasy tropey plotty point in this book yes and it's the biggest sort of um it's the biggest sort of like uh sort of drama in the entire book i mean it is literally a thing that all the drama rotates around it's this this item uh, what's it called duncan 
Oh no, don't catch me on that one. I'm not trying to catch you out, I don't remember. It's a very short book, and I read it really fast, so it's been a while since I've read the it at this Argon's point. The Argon's Heart, I don't know, let me... It's not the Argon, is no, it? No, it's not, I just made something up there. The Scalibur's Stone. The Scalibur's Stone, which is the last item Viv gets. It's the opening of the book. It's her going on her final quest, and just taking this one item. So, how does it work? It's supposed to be, according to this ancient rhyme, a source of luck. That if you bury this at the the intersection of ley lines, it will make your heart's desire come true. So Viv takes this and she buries it under her coffee shop and she thinks this is going to bring her luck. And a point comes throughout the story of people start to want to take this from her, particularly her old colleague, Fennis, this assassin elf guy who she's never gotten along with. He wants it because he could t- take that and it can make his heart's desires come true. And basically, the sort of drama is if he takes it away, the coffee shop's doing great. Will it go out of business? Will her luck turn around? Because what you have here is a story about everything just comes together. You know, Viv finds the right people. She she finds the right opportunity to, to seize the thing. She gets people to come along and try her stuff and they like it. Everything's coming together. Would everything fall apart if she lost it? Now, having to step back into the uh, the critical reviewer part of me, this didn't quite work for me, Geordie, because the moment this was really introduced, okay. I went, yeah, I know how this is going to end. It's going to turn out, no, it wasn't the magic power. It was Viv's hard work and good nature and the true magic stone with a friend she but made along the way. the thing is, like, come on, that has to be the ending, otherwise this is not the right book. I hear what you're saying there, but no, for me, I was like, well, there's actually a good chance that this is magic because I because di- otherwise the success of a store is a little bit unreasonable. Like, it's not easy starting up a store uh, and you do lose more money than you make. Is it would it be so unreasonable that this is a source of magic? The way I thought it might end was that the stone is magic and that she was relying on it the whole time. But by the time it gets taken from her. Her shop is well-established, and times get harder and leaner, and things just don't go as well as they are in the future. But by persevering, you f- the moral of the story is, oh, maybe we needed magic at first, but if we just come together and we work together, we can push through the harder times and make it anyway. See, the book does actually leave a little bit of ambiguity around this point. About... It does not. All right, Geordie. Again, Tito point. I felt it was an ambiguous word, not the magic. Had I passed. wanted it to be. I wanted it to be more. Ooh, maybe. Who knows? But then a character comes along and he's like, "No, no, no, no! I'm going to lay it out very plainly. This is what the rhyme actually means, and this is what it actually does, and it did have an effect. But you don't need that effect anymore." I didn't trust that character's full knowledge because they're on the, based on the rhyme. But fine, maybe I was just trying to get my twist off it. That dude is a literal time traveller. <laughs> okay, I will I will step down on this one. I hope I was right on the prior point about the magical and the payments, because otherwise I'm coming out like I didn't read this book very well. So, that isn't okay. The thing is, I just felt like that undermined Viv's accomplishments a little bit. And I much would have preferred an ending where they came down hard and said, no, it wasn't that at all. I just think that would have had better catharsis for me. 
I actually liked this to reveal a lot. And not gonna lie, it did make me cry a little bit at the office whilst I was listening to it. Um, it's the what's revealed is heart's desire doesn't mean financial success. What it actually means is you find the right people. It says that it brings together people like you. It means brings together people with the same heart as you. And we know this is confirmed to be true because, well, it one, it brings together Viv and Cal and Tandry and Thimble and, uh, I, wait, what's, what's the bard's name again? Pantry? Pendry. Pendry, excuse me, my bad. Uh, and Pendry. And when Fenner, Fenus steals it and he burns down the store, when he comes back like a year later and he's hanging around, he crosses over the intersection of ley lines. And who is he confronted by? By criminals, by people, by ruthless people with the same cruel black heart as him. And then he gets eaten by a cat. All right, I do see that now. That does make a lot more sense. I thought that was simply a... I don't know, coincidence? Despite the book clearly making out there's a magical artist. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's skiing the criminals because that's just his just comeuppance. Awesome. It, and it is. It's karmically just because he has an evil heart, so it brings together people who also have an evil heart to him. But what I like about it is that it means that Viv's success didn't have anything to do with magic, making it so that people thought her business was a great idea. It just found her the people she needed who had the same hope and heart and dream and who could believe in her. And that's all she needed. She just needed people around her who believed in her dream So in as many well. respects, it is still chalked up to Viv as a character because if Viv wasn't so effectively pure of heart, exactly. it would have worked. Exactly. If she wasn't virtuous, she wouldn't have found other virtuous people. Okay. I like that now. I am, I am on board. Good. Duncan, do you want to know the other scene that made me cry? Yes. So, the big climax of the book is that the store gets burnt down. Fenris lights it on magic fire, and while she manages to save her coffee machine and, like, the very small amount of money she, she managed to make from the store, and, and, uh, and Tandry, most importantly, the store is gone. It gets completely burnt down. But then through people coming together, they start to rebuild it when all seems lost. And just seeing, it's such a fucking standard scene, but seeing everyone who she's made friends with show up in order to help her out when they get nothing in return, that just, that's a scene that's always going to get to me. It's like the end of It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, That makes me cry every, every year at Christmas. But... This time, when Pendry showed up and just like quietly, without saying a word, gets to work, and you remember, like he's a he's basically a f- strong farm laborer. I completely was welling up, being like, "Don't cry, Geordie, don't cry, because Pendry's here." And I guess when you describe a scene like that, like firstly, I loved it too. Mm-hmm. I had such an emotional response. I thought it was so just heartwarming. Yeah, I was having, at the time, I wasn't in the best of moods either. And this really did pick me up. But I can also completely see that other person going, so hokey. Oh, come on. God, this is just too positive. And I can't be like, no, it's not. Because it is. All I can say is, yes, and I love it for it. 
Now, the one thing which I previously did not like in the book was how at the ending, the rebuilding of the store just gets bankrolled by the Madrigal. I felt like it wasn't earned and it just kind of came out of nowhere. But actually, if Duncan, your reading is right and they just want cinnamon rolls and they've completely forgone any kind of like financial relationship at all, I guess that is cohesive and does make sense because the point of that scene would be we're not going to have any kind of financial exploitation of you. This is purely to save face. So as long as this is done under the table, I am not compromising our relationship. So if you're right, Duncan, then actually my complaint about that scene about how over the top the Madrigal's generosity is, then it doesn't apply. It's just it's just not the case. I think it does two things. It kind of makes the... Firstly, it's like the magical sort of statement. It's not actually a, I'm here to make all the money. It's a, I'm here to actually have a, a good working city. Mm. And I deem you a benefit to my city. And also, it is that other half, which is, if everyone else thinks you've been paying me for protection money, then it would look awfully shit if I didn't fulfil my end of the bargain. That's true. Maybe maybe the fact that the place got burnt down, she basically had the protection racket equivalent of like an insurance form to be like, okay, we did not protect your store despite us having a protection agreement. We were obliged to rebuild it now. I mean... That's pretty funny, actually. That is how... <laughs> if you were to take something, which in the real life is quite, you know, a serious and unpleasant thing, and given most like heartwarming twists heartwarming twist to it i think that's the best way to do it it's how i imagine it in um it seems almost kind of discworld to me if that is what the author's going mm. for in discworld it would go completely full that way and have it be that you know a mafia boss or in their case the thieves guild would have like a, a literal contractor coming around and sizing the place up to be like it's a pretty nice place you got here now um this is what you're going to pay for our premium rate of protection. Here's our substituted rate. Stuff like that. I mean, yes. And I would love it. So I, actually, I'm surprised I've only just brought up Discworld. There's certainly... I wouldn't say this book is in the same space as Discworld. Because it's not hard on the comedy in the same way. No, the comedy's there, but it's quite And it means it's actually smaller in scope than any Discworld. But... It certainly put me in the same comfortable frame for reading fantasy. I'm thinking if I was trying to recommend this to someone, that would be just the closest point of reference that I could go, kind of put the stake in and go, yeah, maybe you like a bit of this. You could then, you might enjoy a bit of Legends and Artes. I don't know. I, there's no, there's no Discworld novel that I can think of which actually compares to it in terms of tone. Because normally there is a sort of adventure going on. There's a source of serious drama. Like, from the witches and death. He's death is saving the universe. And and Watch are investigating crimes and stuff. I, I mean, I can't think of anyone that's just like, oh, this is a low stakes. Then again, I haven't read the one where they play football. <laughs> I, would, I was actually going to pull up Unseen Academicals and The Truth. The one where he's, uh, he's writing for the local newspaper. Okay. And maybe a tad more on the raising steam and going postal side of things. There's one about them making movies, right? Yes, there is. That uh, that will also be of a feel on the same ballpark, I think. So the low key, this is just set in Ankh Morpork sort of books, as opposed to the 
thuds or the guards guards yes definitely and maybe even a little bit more on the witcher's side than the death and the wizardry I think I think there's something there. I'm not saying it's the same. I want to make that very clear. But I am saying if you're coming for this from the wider fantasy genre and you're just like, I just don't know, that would be the only indicator in my back catalogue I could pull up and be like, maybe. Maybe not still, but maybe. Whereas if you came to me and went, I really like Game of Thrones, I'm like, okay, great. I, I don't know if you're like this. <laughs> it's just a flip of the coin. Duncan, what do you think about the romance in this book? so glad you brought it back to that the romance between Viv and Tandri I really enjoyed Mm. and I really enjoyed as I sort of said earlier because I think it progresses at a really nice pace I don't think it throws itself too in it's not the heat of passion it's two people working together learning how well they work together Mm -hmm. both in the business sense and how they work off each other as just two people Mm. And then slowly coming together. Yeah. Perfect. It's It suits the pace of the rest of the story. It's not one where the... I was about to say the action of the, the coffee shop, but more the progression of a coffee shop. It doesn't go on pause for them to then focus on romance. They're two things that move... They're almost homoousian. You know, the success of a store is parallel to their success of their relationship. The moment when the store burns down, that's a major wedge between them. And as the store goes back up, they get closer as well. And when the store is bigger and better than ever, their relationship is bigger and better than ever. And it also really worked for me because from page one, when Tandri, Viz's um, um, partner in this, first gets introduced, I didn't immediately go, aha, there's our love interest. I've got her. Sure, sure. It, it actually snuck up on me in general in fact even i think it was up until they were like do you want to go and get a bite for eat to eat after work i was like oh oh okay yes go for a bite to eat together that sounds like fun i it didn't initially occur to me i actually the same for you you well you know what i've just realized and i i made this mental note weeks ago this has been quite a slow episode to come out but I read and considered this right after I finished the book. And what this book really is, is it's... Duncan, if I said the, the words coffee shop AU to you, would you have any idea what I was talking about? No, not a clue. Okay, so coffee shop AU is a type of fan fiction which stands for coffee, coffee shop alternate universe. And the idea is, is that you take two characters you like or a whole cast of characters, and you make them into the owners or the workers at a coffee shop. Because basically, you take the characters and you take them out of the drama. You put them into a totally chill, hangout, easy space, and you just let them interact in a situation where their lives aren't on the line. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I do like the sound of that. And it, to me, sounds like it would be a great test of character work. Do yeah. your characters function as rounded individuals or do they just drive your drama? And it's, that's no problem if they do just drive your drama, if your drama's just good enough. I don't necessarily think Conan the Barbarian is going to be the most interesting person in a coffee shop. That I know that's not true, man. You were a huge fan of the Twitter account Salaryman Conan. 
yeah, okay, it's a great show to shout, and it had amazing jokes in it. But my point being, he doesn't have to be because it, in a short, punchy, action-filled story, you characters don't have to. But it's mm. great when they can stand alone and in a different context. So, is there? Do you have a particular favourite, Jordy? I've never read one. Are you a fan of this? Never read one. No. You should write one. Fine, whatever. Does that not sound the most fun? Maybe. Maybe I will. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Viv and Tantry, Coffee Shop AU. <laughs> to be fair, though, it's something that... What if these two people work together at a coffee shop? <laughs> I... <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's something I do think is really nice, though, to have those quieter moments when characters can just talk to each other. It's like when they get to the tavern, you know, they've had an adventure, they've done a leg of their journey, your characters have reached the next safe point, mm. so you just let them sit around the campfire and have interactions. That way, when the next dramatic thing happens, you care all the more. Yeah, it's there are so many stories I've read where the characters fucking hate each other. Uh, the classic example of this for me is a book called To Kill a Kingdom, where these two characters have no reason to like each other. They're constantly sniping at each other and like making wisecracks to put one another down. Uh, one of them, their whole fate relies on them killing the other person. And then at one point, they suddenly end up in danger. They're captured. And they're so worried about each other's safety suddenly. Oh, no. Let it, let it go. Oh, no. And then after they escape, they're deeply in love. They're deeply in love. And it's so organic, Duncan, to go from hating each other to being in danger to be, being completely madly in love with one another. Okay. So we're talking about the um, enemies to lovers trope or the haters to lovers trope. What they kind of? What's the official yes, name for it? Yes, enemies is. to lovers. That's, that is what I'm talking about. Enemies but you to lovers. You need a moment where their minds change, where they see that person in a different light, and it has to happen organically. It has to happen organically. I'll be honest with you. I would struggle to pull up a perfect example for me, because in general, I don't like this trope. I know why it makes good drama. I know how it can drive narratives, but ultimately, You're not a big railo shipper. No. I just wanted to see Finn and Poe. Yes, me too. I never so will. True. <laughs> now back because to I want to see. <laughs> well, <laughs> back to this story. Yeah, back no, to the story. I just want to say this. I can't stand it. Maybe people feel this more in real life, but to me, it's like I've never known people who started off hating each other and came round to like loving each other. I just like no, you you hit it off. That's how it works. Maybe that's just my small perspective. Have we not come across anything like that in the books we've read so far? Have we ever had a... I guess the closest would be the Poppy War, but they don't get together. I am quickly thinking through. I don't think we've ever... Well, we sort of skirted it in A Court of Thorns and Roses, haven't we? Well, I guess. I mean, it's barely enemies to lovers right like she's like i hate all fae but i can't help but noticing how strong his chin cheekbones are but then again that's just all the fucking ya fantasy books that have come out in the spirits of sarah j mass we're so off topic let's get back to what we like about legend lattes is the fact that it doesn't do that actually we should talk about scholomance because that was kind of an enemies to lovers she didn't like him at all man i wonder what happened to their relationship you know I don't know, man. It's just there's no way to find out. It's been a year, a struggle. Oh, sorry. And let's not forget that uh, Children of Blood and Bone 
is basically oh, still yes, waiting. Oh, yes, of but course. We know That's the ultimate one. But then they don't get together. They hate each other by the end of the second book. Third book's still pending, mate. Who knows? I have my guesses. I have... I... Yeah. Yep. Who knows? Genuinely, who knows? Um, I'm actually so off topic, I can't remember how to... <laughs> I also like the romance. That's what we were talking about. And what I like most about it is how Tandri is a succubus. It's their version of like a tiefling, but it is, you know, it very much stays in the realm of actually like having magical make you fall in love with me powers. And what I love about it in this version is that succubuses don't succubi, don't have magical I'll make you fall in love with me powers. They just project out their feelings as like an aura. And you feel all of their passions and their excitement. And so Tanji keeps all that stuff buttoned up underneath to make sure that she doesn't have any kind of effect on people because she doesn't want to send the wrong message. And then right at the end, when she and Viv kiss and she lets down all those walls and Viv feels all this passion and excitement come flooding out. Oh, I love that. That was so sweet. It is sweet. I just want to be clear, though. This is just a thing where you can feel what they're feeling. It's not about them manipulating how you feel. Yes, but of course it's it's infectious. It's an infectious excitement. Because I'm not going to lie. A sport army does think, like, you sort of, from a moral obligation, should try and keep a cap on that. If that's going to influence someone else unfairly. That's quite a dangerous power to have. I, 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 it's really sweet in the book, and it doesn't go into that detail. But I am like, no, you need to have like, if you, if you being like in love with someone can influence their feelings of love. I don't, I, I don't know. I think you just, you just feel it. You feel it's like when someone laughs. You're more inclined to laugh when you hear someone laugh. It's sympathetic. I guess so, and I guess also you, you. It's never a secret where it's coming from, so you that's can be like, ah, oh, that's what they're book, feeling. Yeah. Yeah, so, like the noise no, I do get and the uh, knife never letting go. And it is that moment of relief when they finally kiss, get together, and you're like, oh, good. They are going to be together, and they are going to be actually together, not just business partners. Mm-hmm. This is where it's going to end, which is where you want it to end. So also, that was also, really nice. Also, the final part of the... Um, uh, the final part of the, the arc is Viv turning her shop into a cooperative. Yes. Yes, it is. Communism for the win. Socialism, yes. <laughs> exactly. No ta- no more big-time boss, Viv. Now they're all equal partners in the business. No, my point to that, though, is I do think it's really nice. Firstly, because they have all come together. They are a band. They're like a family now, which is really nice, which would always feel a little bit off, like it does in a workplace, where they're like, we're a family here. You know, yeah, yeah. When it's like, no, you pay me to be here. Let's get this very clear. Also, it seems like the only thing Viv can truly give back at the end for them helping literally rebuild the entire business. It's like the recognition. It's like all I have to give you is a share in what we've created together. Exactly. And I'm like, and that's wonderful. We haven't talked much about Fimble, but at the end of the day, Fimble is very cute because they're a little mouse person and they make sweet baked goods, and that's great. But it, it can't be overstated that in the book, they make it very clear that a huge part of a shop's appeal is not Viv, and it's not even her coffee. Um, it's it's Fimble's work as a baker. Ba- Fimble is a baking genius, and she would not be that successful without Fimble. And the idea that Fimble would just be a 
salaried worker who is the linchpin of their business. To be honest, throughout the book, there are parts I was like, I feel kind of feel bad for Thimble because you're clearly way more important to this company than she could ever hope to pay you with a salary. So Thimble becoming part of the co-op and being a co-owner of the business is such a good justified ending. It is. I mean, looking at the final menu now, it's like, I think most of the money must come in off Thimble. Absolutely, because Thimble's, the things Thimble makes are the most expensive ones. Yeah. So a standard coffee, half bit, latte, one bit. And then it goes to like Thimble's bakers. It's like cinnamon roll, four bits, mm-hmm. eight times the cost of a coffee. Um, I, I think these are, me- they're called Midnight Crescents. I think they're meant to be they're brownies. just a... Sorry? They're like brownies, I think. No, it's a buttery foldover with a sinful centre. I thought it's meant to be like a pan au chocolat. Oh, okay. If they're but crescents, again, four then it bits. means they're not pan au chocolat, they're chocolate croissant. Oh, yeah, you're right, actually. It's chocolate croissant. I do... It's, this might. I'm, listen, we might get some very mad French listeners, um, but that's fine. Duncan says nasty stuff about the French all the time. Um, and I yes, prefer I do. a chocolate croissant to a pan au chocolat. My favourite is an almond croissant. I don't think you can top it. Where me and Geordie went to university together, the student union shop had like a local bakery supplier for their almond croissants. Mm. And I still am seeking the high of having <laughs> that for the first time. Beautiful things. We have a friend who works there. He could get you some. Do you know what? That's never occurred to me. I'm actually going to tap him up for that now. They also <laughs> do, um, you can get like a focaccia. Oh, beautiful stuff. I miss it so much. Duncan, um, I feel like we've explored a lot of what makes this book work. I really don't feel like we're missing anything important. You know, like, there's her previous band of adventures, but to be honest, they're not the characters I'm most excited to talk about. I'm much more interested in talking about Hobgoblin Carpenters than I am, like, an assortment of thieves and uh, adventurers and stuff. I kind of feel like we've covered what I want to cover. I mean, everything else is just giving lip service to what I feel is so good. The character of Hemington, who's a student who visits the shop, and it's the one aforementioned who they get the rule that you have to buy something. I'm like, I can just see him. I just feel like, yeah, I know him. And maybe it's because I spent time in... Hemington is so good for the story because he is this really hard-to-please customer. He's not an asshole. He's not a jerk you want to kick out. But he's just this guy who keeps having problems that make him a bad customer where he wants to come in and just work and not pay a co- for a coffee. And then when they serve him up and try and make him buy a coffee, he says, I don't like hot drinks. And then later, they, they you, you, so you're thinking in your head, aha, uh-huh, they need to introduce food. If he buys food, then he can sit in. And then they, they bring, bring him out a cinnamon roll and he says, all right, you can stay in if you eat this. And he says... I, I can't eat bread. <laughs> and so you're like, ah, Hamilton! And then finally, finally, they introduce iced coffee. And finally he's satisfied. And it feels like this gigantic win. Like, yes, we got him. We finally have found something that he'll eat. I, I just love that moment because he drives the innovation and like the forming out of the menu. Like mm-hmm. that's where these things exist because there are people who don't like some of the basics, who want that interesting thing. When I first went to a coffee shop with my partner and she was like, can I get the fruit coolie? And I'm like, people order that? Okay. Okay, a caramel latte, please. The first time I got a bubble tea, I was on a first date. I'd never gotten it before. I don't drink tea. And so we went up and... We ordered it. We looked in the menu and I asked, could I please get a strawberry? Because I love strawberry flavoured things. 
a strawberry green fruit tea with strawberry popping pearls. And I got it. I drank it. I didn't like it. And literally, long line, 10 minutes after I ordered, I sat down, I drank it, I didn't like it. She said, yeah, that's one of the bad ones. Why didn't you tell me? We've been in this life for ages. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel you there. Bubble tea is a nightmare when you're first going. My local one, so while I've been living in my current house, we had a little independent bubble tea place start up. And to be honest, I got a lot of vibes reading this story to like watching them develop their bubble tea shop. When mm. they first opened, they had a limited menu and now they just kept picking. They've got new extra items, new food things, mochi you can have in the summer. And I just mm. love watching them develop. And it's like, there's a great bit in this book where they t- talk about when the customer rushes are. And it's like, oh yeah, first thing in the morning, you get the workers on their way in, mm-hmm. but then there's a lull. And I'm like, you know, and then you get the people who kind of drip in later in the afternoon or come for their chats and things. Mm-hmm. And I love it because it reminds me of the local Bob tea shop because like, I always go late at night. So when they first opened, it was like, um, I think it was very normal. I was like half eight till 5.30, long hours. But then they shifted the hours later on. They now open till like seven o'clock at night because they realised, well, we need to catch the people coming back from work. So we're not getting the morning guys in. People don't get a bubble mm. tea on the way into work, but people do get a bubble tea on their way home. I had the same experience of a local coffee shop back years ago when um, they first arrived and they were very new in town. They were just setting up. And I had that same experience because after a while, they started to do special events like playing music there, like live music, like with uh, like like with Pendry. And I have played improvised jazz there. You know, I, I've, I've been a performer at that store and I've seen them develop professional relationships. There was another independent operation was started up a place called steak and honor who were just started by a couple of friends who bought a van to sell burgers from and so every friday not every friday we weren't made of money but we would go down to this coffee shop and we pick up these this this burger just from a van that parked outside the store they had a special relationship and now that burger store is like an actual shop in cambridge that See, and I feel like that almost plays to the fantasy. Like, Legend of Nantes is a fantasy book. Yes. You know, Viv is an orc. Tanji is a succubus. But the real fantasy that you're enjoying here is the fantasy of having your own coffee shop. Because mm. you go through every detail with Viv that you almost feel like, yeah, I'm on this journey. And I do think... Absolutely. In terms of, like, businesses to do, I once had a business lecture at university and he would say he was trying to explain to us like the difference between like buy-in and like fallout of business and like there are some industries that are easier to buy into but likewise there are some industries it's easier to exit from it's like well Mm -hmm. aerospace it's very expensive you can't just set up your own aerospace firm but on the other hand you also can't just leave like the british government won't let ba fold because you need a british airways Uh, but he said a coffee shop a big enough group of students could all plug together and just start a coffee shop. What mm. do you need? The machine. The biggest thing is the, the rent on the fl- on the shop, you know, actual shop floor. Yeah. And then you could literally just get some old furniture, buy it from, you know, someone's house, get it second hand, and you're going. 
And I think that's the fantasy that I'm buying into the the idea of actually like, yeah, actually. It's attainable. I could do it's that. Reach. That's the dream. And so many people, they open restaurants and it doesn't go that well, you know? It is a really, really ruthless place. The fantasy of it going well, yeah, it's out there. It's a far out goal. But when you see it happen in the book, it just, um, it's it's soothing. It is. And I think then, I don't know why I'm leaving on this message. It makes me then think of my local bubble tea place. And I think how like big coffee brands like Starbucks and Costa like dominate. And I'm like, don't take the bubble tea. Like if any, if you take anything away from this book, it's going to be this renewed passion to be like, yeah, I will support my local. I will go and I'll go to my local bubble tea and I'll get one there to keep that kind of dream alive. <laughs> Duncan. A big part of this book, and it cannot be understated, is just about how great coffee is. Large sections taken of seeing people drink it the first time and enjoying it, of having its aroma and its flavour explained and appreciated. I fucking hate coffee. Right, so uh, that's the end of the episode, everyone. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be back, so good day to you all. And I've been your host, Jordy Bailey. No, we have to talk about what we're reading Jordy. next week. Jordy, I mean, I understand. I don't relate. I think coffee is a beautiful drink of that can have so many different depths and approaches. Very recently, a work colleague shared with me, we hadn't really spoken a lot, but we were in the little foodery bit at the back of the office, waiting for the kettle to boil, because our hot water blooming tap broke, honestly. And, you know, you just we bonded over talking about coffee and then the next week he came in and he brought me a little thing of instant Turkish coffee to have and it has such a much more like earthy flavour to it than what I was drinking which is a bit more acidic in its kind of taste and it I love how a drink can like bring people together and can be a conversation starter but I completely understand you just don't like it that's fine that's why tea exists for all the odd people I don't drink tea and the British Hot chocolate. I love hot chocolate. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe... No, no, coffee fans. Listen, aside from maybe wine tasters, no one else gets so fixed, fixated on this one drink and its different flavours, you know? Like, imagine Jim Bros talking about their favourite protein shakes. And not like, oh man, you need to get that 0.8 gram per pound. Just talking about like, yeah man, I like to mix in a little bit of, um, a little bit of PhD with a little bit of Smarty. That's how I like to do it. You know, I feel like it gives it a fine, earthy mix to it, you know? A little bit of strawberry on top of it as well. Like that, that really brings it together, bro. I do appreciate that. And I was even going to say, like, it, I think it's a shame because I think it's a shame that people don't talk about, like, hot chocolate as much in the same vein. I think that deserves the same level of, like, appreciation. Uh, this is a bit out, maybe off topic, but did you know that PG Tips, one of the biggest tea brands in the UK, they don't have, like, it's not a leaf that defines their flavour. There's not, like, a recipe Every time they get in like a new batch of products, they literally just have a room of 20 guys and presumably girls as well who just know what 
PG tips tea tastes like. And every time they get in a new batch, they have to adjust all the ratios to be like, yeah, that's right. That's weird. That's weird. I mean, I guess that's how a lot of stuff's done, but yeah. It's just 20 people who are just like, yeah, we know what the flavour is. And I know it's not quite the same with coffee, but I think you do get similar vibes. Like, yeah, some people just know what it's meant to taste like. And everyone can have it differently. And that's where the conversation comes from. Geordie, I think we've talked about this enough. I just want to come to the final question. Did you like this book? Oh, yes. I liked it a lot. I have already... It's so nice and relaxing that I have just put it on the beginning chapters on in the evening before I go to bed just to cool down. I equally thought this is an incredible book that really took me by surprise. I have not reveled in the fantasy of being, like just being in the space of the story for such a long time. Like I enjoyed reading The Worm and His Kings. I didn't Mm. want to be there. No. Horrific. (laughs) Um, And even more like traditional (laughs) epic fantasy, like I don't want to be the hero. I know that would be terrifying. It's a different sort of escapism, for sure. You know, it's not just about being the daring and bold hero, a la, you know, the never-ending story. It's about living a fulfilling and exciting life in a much more mundane way. Being successful, not just in terms of finances, but also in terms of the people in your life. I was going to make a horrible joke there about being like an equally unattainable fantasy, but no, seek that dream. This book really did resonate with me and it's hard because I normally at this point we turn to like recommendations. I really find it hard to, I mentioned earlier about like Tay Pratchett, it's like the only vague measuring stick I could use. But I generally do just feel if you've listened to this and think you would be interested, I think it's worth the risk of buying this book. You know, you might not like it. I'm sorry if you don't. But if you think you will, I, then I think there's a high enough chance that you're right and you should give it a go. For sure, for sure. I would recommend this to a lot of people who just want a low stakes affair. Will we have for our next episode a book equally as chill and relaxing as this one? It will be our final book of the year. What I can promise you is that there are there is a very important connection. There will be lots of scenes of people describing food and how it tastes. Game of Thrones fewer trenches fewer trenches full of gravy no no duncan what i'm talking about is the chronicles of narnia the lion the witch and the wardrobe christmasy vibes last year last year we did hogfather and i said it would be our only ever christmas episode because it's the only christmas fiend fantasy novel and then halfway through the year i went wait a second I know another fairy tale, uh, another fantasy story that takes place at Christmas in which Christmas is a very important aspect of the story because Santa just shows up for some reason. And it's this one, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I have read this book only once before, but not actually that long ago, probably only about Mm. two years ago now, but I'm very happy to dive back into it again and explore it with you. Is this a a childhood favourite? Oh, yes, absolutely. I had it on tape, like a physical tape, which I had to turn over. And, uh, and I, I for the, to prepare for this episode, knowing what I was going to pick, I downloaded 
an audiobook specifically, and it is the exact same recording that I listened to when I was a kid. So I'm going to be having some astounding nostalgic vibes over the next next couple of weeks. Well, I'm looking forward to revisiting it with you. But Geordie, I've got to say to everyone that's listening, if you have read Legend and Artes and have an opinion that differs to ours or agree... I don't mind. Please do agree. But especially if you differ, I kind of do want to get into like people who maybe didn't vibe with it much. Then please do reach out to us and follow us on our Instagram. This is just fantasy podcasts. We put up notifications there when a new episode releases as well as a bunch of extra content. Please follow us there. If you want to get hold of us a bit more directly, you can always email us at this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com. Another great way to reach out. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel. Till next time. Bye. So long.